I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. Hello there, welcome to Soundman Confidential. Today on the show, my very special guest, a man who has played with some of the most iconic and historic bands in rock and roll history. A guitar player par excellence. Please welcome Mr. Adrian Ballou. Hey there, Frankie, Good. and all your fans out there. How are you guys doing? We're doing fabulous today, Adrian. Fabulous. It's so good to talk to you. It's been a while, and uh, Adrian. Yeah, we got to meet more than every couple of decades now. I, yeah, <laughs> I know. We, well, you know, we get lives, and we get busy, and we get families, and we get busy, and we're, you know, it goes by quick, doesn't it? It goes by so quick, you know. And and the, f- the further down the road I get, the quicker it goes, you know. But we're still out there. We're still doing it. We're still, still getting on a stage, and I'm getting on a mixer and and uh, taking joy to the people. Now I'm really, really happy about that for you and for me and for everyone out there because I still love doing it, and you know I can't wait to get back out and play some more shows. And uh, that's the way you should feel about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now I don't know too much about the young Adrian Ballou. I met you when you were a mature adult. When uh, when you you popped. I've never been a mature adult. <laughs> when you popped on, <laughs> when you popped, well, you're way much more mature than I was at the time. When you popped on to uh, the, the 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 Talking Heads uh, the Talking Heads tour when the big band uh, formed. But where where did you come from? Uh, as, as a child, and what were your early recollections of, of and your introduction to music? Um, well, I was, I was born in uh, Covington, Kentucky, which is right across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, Ohio. It's at the very tip top of Kentucky, called Northern Kentucky. Um, I remember when I was, you know, a little wee lad that I would sing and, you know, try to sing along with the radio and try to imitate the voices and uh, try to imitate the voices on uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. And so I, you know, I always had a, a vocal thing happening. I, I always really enjoyed, uh, you know, singing and, and just the sound of voices. And and I, I remember when I was little, I could even, you know, pick out the weird harmony of, say, an Everly Brothers song. <laughs> which most people would sing the melody. I would sing the weird under, underneath harmony that one of them did. And uh, so, I, you know, I think I understood those things early on. When I was 10 years old, we moved to another town in northern Kentucky, not that far away, and the, I joined the junior high school band as a drummer. They, they definitely didn't need any more drummers. They wanted a trumpet player. I said, no way, I want to bang on the drums. So I joined the marching band, and for the next three years, um, I was marching around at football games and parades and things, and then we moved again. And when we moved that final time, we moved um, to an area that had a lot of really good musicians, and the Beatles had been out for a little while, and before I knew it, I was in a band, my first teen band. So from age 14 years old, I was playing drums pretty much every weekend of my life. <laughs> While everybody else was figuring out how to have 
uh, sexual relationships and girlfriends and things. I was actually working and playing for them, entertaining them. Uh, when I was 16, I'll just go on and get this whole story down. My band, which was called the Denims because we wore denim outfits and we played all the, all the Beatles hits. That's what we loved. We were actually eventually known as Cincinnati's own Beatles by the local radio stations and people said we, we were so good at Beatles music. I was a drummer. I could sing like John or Paul or George, so I did a lot of singing and, and, and pretended to be Ringo at the same time. Uh, when I was 16, though, in high school and still in the denims, um, I got mononucleosis, the kissing disease. I must have kissed a water fountain because I don't remember kissing anything else. And uh, they said, you'll have to stay home now for two months. You'll be tutored. You won't be able to be active. You should stay in bed, basically. You can't play drums or anything. So I said, gee, I've got a lot of songs and stuff rolling around in my head. And as a drummer, I don't know how to explain them or play them to anyone. So maybe I should take up guitar. I borrowed a guitar from uh, the father of one of the guitar players in the Tenems. He had a nice little old Gibson, and I borrowed it from him. And for the next two months, I figured out how to play guitar on my own. I just, you know... I just would place my fingers in places and say, okay, that's a note I want to hear. Now, here's the harmony that's, what is that, Where? how do I get my finger in a position to play that harmony? And I eventually I was putting together my, kind of my own chord shapes and things and listening to other people's records and trying to figure out what they were doing. But mostly I was completely self-taught. When I went back after two months and I, I played, uh, I had by then written five songs. And I played uh, my five songs for the other guys in the denims. They said, what the hell are those chords? <laughs> <laughs> Why else? I said, well, I think that's a G demolished. This is A furnished flat. And, you know, I made some jokes and we went from there. So that's how I got started into guitar. And then after a few years of that, locally, um, enough people knew my playing that... I started to get known more as the guy who, who plays interesting guitar stuff. And so I put the drumming on the back burner and started being in bands as the guitarist and front man and singer. And that's, that's what got me where I was. It took years, though, of course. Of course. I mean, I'm talking about from age 16 to 27 before I, could, I caught the eye of anyone that could do anything for me. And that one person was a, 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 an interesting person by the name of Frank Zappa. By then, I was playing in a cover band called Sweetheart, and Sweetheart did really good covers of interesting material, Steely Dan and, you know, McCartney's Wings and stuff like that, not the typical stuff. And we dressed in authentic 1940s vintage clothing. So you had to, if you were going out in the daytime to a grocery store, you had to be dressed in a full three-piece 1940 suit. We, could, we found them all over at these old stores um, with a tie, a fedora, a hat pin, <laughs> the whole thing. You know, so we just dressed like that all the time, and it really got us a lot of attention. And um, one night... Uh, we were playing at a local club called Fanny's, and Fanny's was 
a dark, totally black inside, flat black, dark, kind of funky biker bar, really. Um, and when you were on the stage, there was a hallway that came down the length of the building. You could see people walking in before they could turn to the right, and then they'd be in the club. And I was up there playing, and I saw this weird group of people walk in. Immediately, I knew, wow, that's Frank Zappa. <laughs> he had his big, tall bodyguard, black bodyguard, John Smothers with him, some of his crew or, or band with him. And, you know, they looked like the real deal to me. And I just went crazy. I just started playing and singing the best I could. I sang a couple Stevie Wonder songs. I sang a McCartney song. I sang yeah, everything I sang. I would try to sing. This is what you did in cover bands. You would try to sound like the singer. And I could sound like anyone. You know, I, I, I could really fake any kind of voice. So I think that impressed Frank. So Frank sat kind of right up, right in front of us. And after 40 minutes... He got up and walked up to the stage, which is kind of a high stage, and I leaned down. I was playing Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones, and he shook my hand, and he said, I'm going to get your name and number from the chauffeur, and I will call you when my tour's over because I'd like to audition you. So what had happened, see, he had asked, the, after the, Frank had played a show in town in Nashville at a big arena, and afterwards, he wanted to go out somewhere. He always did this. He'd go out and listen to local bands, hoping to find some interesting talent, you know. And so he asked his chauffeur, a young guy, uh, uh, what band would he recommend? And his chauffeur loved our band. So uh, that's how that happened. So he got the name and number from the chauffeur. And six months went by, and I thought the whole thing was a big fluke. And yet, uh, one day, I was standing there in a hotel room, and the phone rang, and it was Frank Zappa. <laughs> and you said, are you kidding? I couldn't believe it, honestly. I, I was so desperate by then. I was three months behind in my rent. My little Volkswagen had broken down, and nothing was going right for me. My band, the Sweetheart, had broken up months earlier. I was in a little stupid disco band that I didn't like any of the music or anything, and I just needed money. And Frank called, and he said, well, um, I want to fly you out to my house and audition you, and, um, and here is a list of the songs. And he said, you, uh, what you need to do is just, you know, you, you can read the charts or whatever you want. And I said, well, well wait a minute, you know. I, uh, I'm not a reader. I'm completely self-taught. And he kind of paused for a bit and said, well, I don't usually ever work with anyone who doesn't read, but um, I'll take a chance. You know, here's the songs. He gave me a list of 12 songs. They were from different records. I borrowed the records from friends of mine because I didn't have any Zappa records and didn't have the money to buy any. <laughs> and I had about one week to learn this and what Frank said is well you learn these songs just figure out your own way to play them and sing them at the same time do it as best as you can and they were super tough complicated songs so I would get up in my little apartment in the morning and play those records and just play and play till I went to sleep that's all I, all I did for at least a whole week 
Then I flew out there, and it was the first time I'd ever flown on a plane. Can you believe that? 27. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> went to his house down in the basement. He had the beginnings of his studio, big open room, and he auditioned me, and I sucked. I mean, I really, there was so much activity going on. I'm standing in the middle of the room with a microphone and a pig nose amp on the floor, and Frank is sitting behind the console, a cigarette in his mouth, and you know, asking me to play this song and then that song. And people were moving pianos and drum kits, and there's so much activity. I just, I, I did badly, honestly. I knew I did. But I had nowhere to go, so I stayed around all day because they said around 6 o'clock at the end of the day they would take me back to the airport, send me back to Nashville. And then finally there was a moment there where it was just me and Frank and everything had quieted down. And I said, Frank, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I did very well. And he said, how, what, how so? And I said, well, I thought it would be different. He said, what, what do you mean? And I said, I, I thought it would just be like you and me somewhere quiet where I could show you that I can do this. And he said, okay, let's go upstairs to the living room and we'll, we'll try it again. <laughs> so we went upstairs and sat on his purple couch. I stuck the pig nose down in, my, in the pillows so I could turn it up a little bit. <laughs> And we started over, and about a third of the way through, he stopped me and shook my hand and said, you got the job. Amazing. Amazing. How Truly things. amazing. Yeah, it uh, blew my mind. And then things went from there. I, I went out to um, L.A., and I got a little apartment. I didn't have a car. didn't have much of anything. I had a guitar and an amp. <laughs> and we rehearsed for... Three solid months, some of it in a big film studio where they used to do a lot of old movies like uh, Laurel and Hardy and things like that. Um, we'd rehearse five days a week, um, eight to ten hours a day. Really tough stuff. But the first week, um, on the Friday at the end of the first week, Frank said, get in the car. The car comes to pick him up. He said, get in the car. You're going to spend the weekend with me. And I'm going to show you what's coming up for next week. Because all the other guys, these other hotshot players, they're going to be reading the charts, but you're going to have to learn it by rote before them. So that continued for three months. I mean, every weekend just about, I stayed at the Zappa house, and me and Frank would work real late into the wee hours. I keep using that term wee because I know who I'm talking to. <laughs> With all we. <laughs> And there you go. That's how I um, appeared on the, the bigger stage. <laughs> how, how, how you joined the circus. That's how I, I ran away and joined the circus. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, Zappa, even as a stoned hippie, when I was listening to Zappa as a stoned hippie, we all thought he was this incredible stoner or something, and he wasn't. No, know, not at all. He was as straight oh, no. as a die, apparently. Very much so. In fact, Frank even made commercials in California. Not many people know this, but he did a, a television commercial against drugs. And if you were in his band, woo, it was really strict rules. And there was problems because during the European tour that we did together, a couple of the people in the crew and a couple of the band guys uh, got caught with some drugs. And uh, Frank didn't do anything about it because he had a whole tour you know, sitting there, he had to finish it out. But the last night of that tour, he fired everyone. 
except me, I'd already quit. <laughs> <laughs> what what led you to uh, to to make that decision? Did it just run its course, or no, David Bowie? Oh, David Bowie came and asked you, and how did that happen? Yeah, how did how did the okay? David so use? we went to um, we toured America for two months, took a two week break, and during that time, someone had stolen my Stratocaster, or the airlines didn't return it. So I went out and bought a new funky Stratocaster and beat it up and <laughs> set it on fire and all kinds of stuff to make it look funny. And um, so we arrived and we went to, it, actually it was the first night in London while we were rehearsing that uh, some, some guys in, as I said, um, got busted. <laughs> it was a big deal. Um, then we went on tour for, for in Europe. And we were in Cologne, and I didn't know this, but Brian Eno was in the audience, and Brian Eno was, of course, working with David Bowie, and he knew that David was about to do a new tour and was looking to get a, a new guitar player. So he told David, you know, you got to go see this guy who's with Frank Zappa. A couple of nights later, we played in Berlin, which was, you know, where David was living, actually, at the time. And there's a part of the show every night where Frank would take like a long extended guitar solo and just the bass player, Patrick O'Hearn, and the drummer, Terry Bozio, would accompany him. Everyone else should leave the stage. So as I left the stage, I looked over at the, uh, at the monitor board and there was David Bowie and Iggy Pop standing there. I couldn't believe it. And uh, so I walked over and I said, you know, Mr. Bowie, I just want to thank you for all the music you've made. I'm a real fan of what your work. And he said, great. How'd you like to be in my band? <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed to Frank out there in the middle of the stage. And I said, well, I'm kind of working with that guy. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, yeah, I know. But uh, your tour ends and my tour starts a little bit, a couple weeks after that. So maybe we should talk about this. And uh, I'll meet you back at the hotel and we can go have some dinner. So you can imagine my head at that moment was floating through the air. And I went back to the hotel and over in a corner, kind of behind a plant on a couch there sat David and his assistant, Coco. And I walked over and they said, shh, shh, just, just go on up to your room and, and, and don't say anything and come back down and five minutes and we have a car waiting outside. So I was thinking to myself, wow, this is like a, a spy film or something, you know? <laughs> so what happened is pretty interesting. And I hope I can say these words on your show or you can bleep them out. You can say anything. Good. I came downstairs after five minutes, walked outside, chauffeur opened the door of the big black car. I got in the back seat with David Bowie and he started just going crazy and telling me how much he loved what I was doing and the songs we were going to be doing and he had plans for this and that and where the tour was going and so on. And uh, eventually we arrived at a restaurant, uh, a restaurant that he liked. And we walked in the front door, got out of the limo, the three of us walked in the front door and at the very first table, there sat Frank Zappa <laughs> and the rest of the band. <laughs> 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 totally busted. <laughs> so, 
So we didn't know what to do. So we walked over and <clears throat> sat down, you know, very uncomfortable. And David started in and he said, you know, Frank, this is uh, quite a guitar player you have here. And Frank took a tug off his cigarette and said, fuck you, Captain Tom. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Uh, and, and it occurred to me when he said that, that uh, how clever it was, because he had already... He had already demoted uh, David from being Major Tom to Captain Tom. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next thing, David said, well, uh, well, you know, surely we can, we can be gentlemen and talk about this, you know. And, and uh, Frank looked at him again and, fuck you, Captain Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so by that time, I felt, you know, like I, I was like a little tiny thing just sitting there like an ant on the wall or something, like wishing I was an ant on the wall. And David tried one more time. So you don't really want to have anything to say? You don't want to talk about anything? Mm, fuck you, Captain Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so the three of us got up, you know, and we left the restaurant, and we the driver opened the car door for us to get in, and, and David said, I thought that went rather well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what and so as it turned out it really was that two, two, our tour Frank's tour stopped two weeks later David's tour began at rehearsals in, in Texas in Dallas and so a few days later I was on the bus still working with Frank and everyone had, of course was kind of jiving me about all the you know meeting David and everything and I went to back to the back of the bus and Frank was sitting there, and I said, uh, Frank, you told everybody that when this tour ended, you would keep us on retainer while you were going to edit the film you're making, and that would make, take maybe three or four months. And I said, meanwhile, David Bowie has offered me to join him for, three, for four months for a four-month tour. What do you think I should do? Should I just stay... And, and just do nothing and take your money <laughs> for doing nothing? Or should I go on tour with David? And he said, yeah, you should definitely go on tour with David and see what happens after that, come back after that. And that was my plan. So for all those people who are Zappa fans, I never left Frank intending not to return. I, I loved working with Frank, and he was very important in my life. But what happened is he didn't do that. He didn't edit the film at that time. He started a different band. He replaced me with a couple different guitar players and singers and uh, went forward. And then David's tour, meanwhile, turned into a year-and-a-half uh, world tour. So there you go. Very, very gentlemanly of, of Frank, you know. Uh. Well, I I would go see Frank every time I was in L.A. I'd, I'd get I'd go up to his house and it was always under construction. He kept building the studio <laughs> more and more. It ended up being the most incredible studio. And you know, so we remained good friends. His wife was mad at me for about ten years, Gail, <laughs> but not Frank. Frank understood. I mean, you know, I mean, he he said nice things about me in the press and everything after that. So uh, yeah. We got along well. You're a nice guy. I mean, I, I hated that it looked like I was just, you know, uh, gold digging or something, but it wasn't that at all, really. I mean, if you had a chance to join David Bowie's band, you'd probably be stupid not to do that. Yeah. You know what's interesting, though? I was back in 
back in Nashville, back when I was still in the uh, position where I had no money and and my Volkswagen was pretty much in need of repairs, I was driving up 21st Avenue South, and they said, here it is, the new new uh, song from David Bowie, Heroes, and Heroes came on. And I was driving along and going, man, David Bowie, wow. He never, you know, he seems to always be a step ahead of everybody. What a great artist, really loved the song. I didn't know that Robert Fripp was playing guitar on it, but eventually I learned that. And 18 months later, I was playing that song on stage with David Bowie. <laughs> who, who, was the, who was the drummer in that band at that time when you joined? Um, now you really, now you really, I'm get, having a senior moment. <laughs> what was his name? I'll think of it. He was um, Davis, Davis, Davis. Black guy, really good drummer though. I can't remember his name right this minute for some stupid reason. Nah, no, no problem. No, no problem. It's you know what it is, Frankie. I have lived three lifetimes now in this one lifetime. <laughs> I feel like I've met so many people, so many names, so many faces, so many autographs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Been around the. Well, I've been to Japan twenty-one times, for example. So it it's tough to remember everything you know yeah it's it's really weird after a while like well wait a minute so what what was that and we you know and i don't want to be we have met a lot of people uh well certainly man it's crazy you know i worked for so many bands and and people say well how many bands broke up from under you i said all of them so (laughs) (laughs) and it's all your fault they're like i know the truth isn't the truth is, I mean, you're, you know, every single night that you're on tour, you're going to meet a whole new bunch of people. Yep. They're going to be backstage. They're going to be promoters. They're going to be people working at the show. They're going to be, you're going to meet so many people. Multiply that by, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of shows I've played. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, it's, we're very, we're very fortunate. No, I'm a sound man and I've sat in front of you and, and, uh, I, I actually met you before you jumped on board with Talking Heads. I can't remember what show it was. It was we were out with the four piece, and you came backstage, and I remember meeting you in a locker room somewhere in some either school or a, a small arena or something. Was it with Talking Heads? Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, I, it could have been uh, three or four different places because yeah. you guys came through Illinois. That's where I lived at the time, and you played three shows there, and I came to all three of them. And on the third show. Uh, I think it was in Macomb, Illinois, because there were posters everywhere, Fear of Macomb, because, you know, the, yes. the new record was Fear of Music. Yes. And and they, they the guy said, why don't you come out and play the encore with us? <laughs> and I was like, well, I, um, I don't, what song are you playing? Well, Psycho Killer. I said, well, I, I really don't know it. And they said, it's okay, just wait till the end and freak out. <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a good instruction. Which is what happened. <laughs> now, now, getting back to to when you got involved with uh, with with Zappa, uh, which is basically your first professional gig, and you had a a, a real they had a, a, a sound guy, but they Zappa used to mix from a truck, right, and then just send left and right to the front of house, pretty much. Or Eventually, did, yeah, he had he had his own recording truck. Everything was recorded. Yeah. So, in fact, the record that I did 
with him, the first record I've done now, they've put out a bunch of them that I'm on, uh, was called Sheik Your Booty. In fact, it's the biggest selling Zappa records out, out of this whole 55 record catalog. All of what I played and sang on that record was done live because I never got to go back with Frank and finish the record in the studio. So he used only live performances for me. So that's how it went with Frank. He was he had so much um, music recorded that he had, I think, in his studio, his archives had $2 million worth of tapes. Just the tapes were $2 million. Ah. So he recorded everything all the time. He even had um, microphones hidden in his grand piano in the studio. So if someone was just sitting there, he'd turn, turn the mics on and, you know, record what they said. <laughs> <laughs> Not a paranoid man. So, so, but uh, I remember then, how, would, how were, did you have any interaction with the sound guys that you worked with back then? Did they, did, did yes, they, I did. You had a lot of yeah. in, input, or they were, they were involved? Yeah, sure. I, I made good buddies with all of those people. I always liked the crew people. Davey, I think it was Davy Jones was the um, mixer for Frank. By the way, the drummer for uh, David Bowie at the time was Dennis Davis. Now I remember. Okay. Dennis Davis, nice man. Funny. Very what? funny guy. <laughs> kind of like Steve Scales. He had, that, he had that ability to tell funny stories and keep everyone else laughing. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So yeah, because I I work with Sterling Campbell with the B fifty twos still, and Sterling was in and with David for several several little things. Through the yeah, years, I expected that we'd years. play together somewhere down the line because I've done a bunch of these uh, celebrating David Bowie shows, but uh, so far he, he's not been in the band. I was thinking about it. I, I think he comes uh, and goes for diff, different projects. Uh, I think Errol, yeah. he, he 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 works closely with Errol Slick sometimes. Well, there's two different versions now yeah, that's of the what celebrating I David Bowie band. One has Earl and one has me, and that, that's not the reason there's two. Uh, originally, we were all in the one band, and then there were some problems uh, somewhere along the line. I wasn't involved, and uh, it split into two different camps, and uh, I stayed with the guy who asked me to join in the first place and was the producer of it because I thought, well, you know, I'm a loyal person, so... And, uh, you know, I, I think, and I think our band is really great uh, when we do it. We use an orchestra a lot of times. We always involve guests. We had Kate Pearson from the B-52s when we were in New York, and we had Living Color, I think, on the same night, and we had the guy, the astronaut uh, that, that sang uh, David Bowie's uh, song, From Space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's uh, a, a, a good lineup. I've actually, I've actually, uh, I, I'm in touch with Vernon Reed. Uh, I booked, uh, I booked this, the first Manhattan show they ever played when I was booking Irving Plaza, Living Color, and Chris Hadfield is the um, guy I'm talking about. He was, he, he was, he was the, he ran the the uh, International Space Station and was up there for like six months, and at one point he had an acoustic guitar. And they broadcast him floating through the air, um, playing the acoustic guitar and singing Major Tom. <laughs> and they beamed it down to 40 million people on Earth. Really a fascinating guy, really. 
Uh, and Vernon Reed is too, of course. <laughs> you, you could. I skipped from one guy to the other, but Vernon and I are old buddies from a long time because Vernon's band. Um, when I had my band called the Bears in the eighties, uh, Vernon was just putting together Liver, Living Color. They had just come out. Yep. And they were our opening act in Boston, and they blew everybody away. I remember. I didn't get to see them because I would always wait and come when it was time to go on. <laughs> My favorite thing to do is take a shower and walk right on stage if it's all possible. Of course, it never, never is. But, but when I got there, I remember everybody in the Bears and all the people going, "Wow, you missed a great band there." Yeah, and yeah. that turned out to be Living Color. A great band. How did you come up? Take. Uh, I'm not. A, this isn't a, a techie show. But how did you come up with your? Um your method of getting sound out of these little pedals that everybody, everybody else had the same pedals, basically. I mean, how did, how did, uh, how did that develop for you? I don't know. I just have a knack. Like I said, when I was a kid, sound always, um, was something that I was pay attention to. And I just have a knack for trying to get the pedals. I would always try to get them to do something they're not supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, pedals usually come with, you know, a manual, and they way back then they would always have some settings, you know, here, try this, here's a chorus sound, here's a flanger sound. And I would go, yeah, but everybody uses those. I, I search around and find things. Like, for example, there was, a, there was a pedal that electroharmonics made called an echo flanger, and I realized that the, the uh, pot on it, the, 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 would, it was a five-way switch. You go through five different settings could get stuck in between the settings. <laughs> and when you did that, you could get some really interesting guitar sounds. And in fact, one of them was the guitar sound that I used in Genius of Love. That guitar sound is actually, you know, because I've got the setting in between positions in, in a way it's not supposed to do. And if you see that, that they still make that. It's not at all the same now and and they got a much better pot in there now, so you can't get it stuck between anymore. It's useless. <laughs> Lots to be said for vintage. I'm I'm still an analog exactly. kind. I'm still an analog kind of guy. Although you know, I mix digital, and and one had to learn, I had to relearn. You know, and uh, I'm totally of the same um, thing. I've got a foot in both at all times, no matter what, and it's the same yeah. with everything I do. I mean, you have to go digital for certain things. It's definitely the better medium for a lot of things. Um, but, for example, I'm a painter now. I've been painting for, I don't know, a dozen years. And uh, I use acrylics and brushes and palette knives and do all that stuff. But recently, during COVID, I, someone suggested, well, why don't you look at one of these, you know, on, uh, one of these uh, drawing programs, painting programs. So, like, uh, Procreate was the one that I looked at. And I've done over 100 digital paintings since then. And let me just tell you, Frank, I am not really a good computer guy or tech guy. It, people probably think that about me, but I'm pretty good at just, just fooling around and finding something. I'm not really good at understanding it. So when a computer does something and I don't know what to do next, I'm done. I put it away. <laughs> <laughs> so... So what what was the what was the the chronology uh, transitioning from from Bowie uh, to Talking Heads? Because my my recollection is back then no cell phones, no nothing. I get a call saying rehearsal in Long Island City 
show up and there was another couple of crew guys there and I'm going, well, we're, we're getting ready for a tour. I didn't know the nine-piece band was happening. They didn't tell me because David kept everything, so David Bernard is, kept everything so close to his chest, as did management. Yeah. Uh, because I, I really think that Jerry is the one who usually usually did all of the sort of business related things. You know, of course, you had they had their merit, their manager, yeah, Gary. But um, within the band, I think it was Jerry who took care of those things. Everyone in the band seemed to have their own responsibilities when they went out on tour, especially yes, they, when they were they did. starting. So what happened with me was we played. Irving Plaza in New York City, we being me and my little band that I put together after David Bowie. David didn't call me again, and I was sitting around and thinking, what am I going to do now? And, um, of course, I, I knew of Talking Heads, and they had seen me play Madison Square Garden with with David, so they were, they were I think, fans, and then eventually invited me to their shows, and so we kind of got to know each other in that way. But I played at... Irving Plaza was my band Gaga. What I was trying to do was get a record deal for my own solo stuff. So these were sort of uh, whatever you call that. You know, they weren't proper gigs. They were for record label people to come to. But of course, there was an audience. We finished the show, and I did not. But uh, Jerry and David and Brian were there. Brian Eno. And they, they said, would you come over here? And we went in the stairwell. And they said, we're, we're kind of making a record, you know, and uh, we're kind of stuck. We don't really know exactly what we're doing, uh, <clears throat> but we think it's, it's, you know, it's something. And would you like to play on it? Would you be able to play on it tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm supposed to drive back with my band to Illinois. Let me ask them if they mind staying in New York for a day. And, of course, they, they didn't mind that at all. Next morning, I got up and went over to the studio and in one day recorded all my parts that I did on Remain in Light. And the record was at a point where I think they had started it in the Bahamas. And it just had basically, you know, bass and drums and then a chord thing that would go through the whole thing. <laughs> you know, just like a, almost a loop. There were no vocals, nothing like that, no no markers as to what was going to happen next. And so they would just tell me, okay, go in and play something, play what you want to play. I, I went in and I set up my gear and I started going through the few sounds that I had back then. I didn't have much gear. Um, and I saw them in the studio jumping up and down and going, yeah, 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 you know. So they said, okay, well, just do all that stuff you just did. <laughs> And there was one song in particular, which has now become, you know, kind of infamous. The Great Curve is what it turned into being. Back then, it was just a riff with bass and drums in one key, E, simple. Very, very fun to play to. And one of them suggested, I think it was Eno, why don't you go out, put your headphones on, and just wait around till you think there would be a solo you need to think the solo would be for guitar. Play a solo. And David will write the song later around all of that. So I went out and I played a solo. I waited about a minute and a half and thought, okay, yeah, I'm out of here. should play a solo here. Boom, I played a solo. And then I thought, that went really well, you know, and I'm loving this. And I waited around a little longer and played another one. 
And uh, they flipped out, and that became the great curve. And like I said, David then went back after the fact and filled in and started, I think, with, with Eno's help. And uh, I don't know. I don't know who wrote the stuff. I won't go into that because there was a big to-do about who wrote what. Uh, but that's how I ended up getting the call saying, would you come up? We've got four days rehearsal, and we're going to play two shows. And we want to try to play Remain in Light. And um, we're, we're going to extend the band, and we've got other people coming. And so I thought to myself, boy, that's going to be a really tough record to play because there was just layer after layer of different things, you know, throughout the songs and lots of singing that wasn't even David Byrne. Um, and we got there and we had four days, as, as you know, and, and I couldn't believe we even got it done in four days. Then we flew up to Mossport, uh, Canada, and the next thing I knew, I was getting in a helicopter. Yep. I, and I, we were flying <laughs> over the gig to go. They were dropping us into the show. We were flying over it, and we looked down, and it was just so many people. It was 70,000 people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, boy, we should have rehearsed longer. <laughs> well, you, you, you can thank me for the helicopter ride, because at, at that point, we didn't really have a road manager, road manager. Uh, uh, and I, w I was the senior guy because I'd been there two years or three years longer than anybody. And I threw a tantrum because they were going to bus us in and it would have meant us leaving hours and hours early because of the traffic. And I threw a, a tantrum with a promoter and demanded helicopters. And that's why we got them. And I, I remember Thank you that. so much. That was such a thrill to me because I thought, wow, man, this is really the big time. You're, you're riding a helicopter into your show. That's, that's something. Yeah, about. landing backstage and people looking up and waving at us. And they oh, my God. And what, and what a show it was. It Not was only a, our show, but the whole thing. You had all these great bands that were all really hot bands at the time, you know, like Elvis Costello. And I mean, there was a list that was just great. And we got to go on. You might have had something to do with this, too, I bet. We got to go on just as the sun was going down. And so during our show, it went from being daytime to night, and the lights came on. Man, it was fabulous. That's always I a good I think we spot. only played like a 45-minute set, by the way. Yep, yep. Short Very set. short. Festival set. No sound check. Nope. Barely Nothing. a line check. I was. I. I just uh, busked it the whole way, just running, running blind. And the next next place we played was Central Park in New York City. A hundred and twenty five thousand people were yeah. said to be there. Well, well, well not that many the, inside, I mean, but people about, outside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, it was in the parking. You know, they couldn't. Really, but it was as jam packed as it gets, and that was huge. One hundred twenty five thousand people for a band that's played together once. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, the, the John Perales, or was it John Rockwell, in the New York Times uh, uh, on the Monday morning gave us said it was the best sound he'd heard in the park. I think the B fifty two is open that, and the B fifty two is this. I think he said that the sound uh, for the B fifty two is with the same sound system, did not serve them well, but talking heads. Huh. So that must, mm. the, the difference must have been me, because I didn't mix the Bs. Of course, yeah, of course. And you, of course, know that later on, we, we toured with uh, B-52s, and that was pretty fun, too. Yes, yes, and uh, here I am ending up with them. Uh, 
That's nice. Getting... Tell them I said hello. That, you know, I, as I said, I saw Kate not too long ago in the Bowie show. She did Golden Years, and it was great. Ah, well, getting back to that Talking Heads tour, which I have, uh, I was on, I have fond memories of most of the time. Um, we we went to, uh, but getting back to the rehearsal, I walked into the rehearsal room at Brit Row, and there was Bernie Morrell, Buster John, Steve Scales, yourself, uh, but I, and I didn't know who was coming. I had to knock that together in four days, the nine piece. But the thing was, it was easy because I got great stuff. But mixing two bass players, I'd love to do that again. I've got better ideas about what I would do with it this time, you know. Not many guys get Well, a chance I thought that was great because it really, it fit everything that was needed because Tina has her own very special melodic way of playing bass and then Busta was really a funky low down kind of bass oh, player yeah. worked really well and the other thing that worked so well you know Chris is a great drummer for the Talking Heads but when you put a percussionist with him wow yeah a percussionist if you're a drummer and, and I am and you get to play with a guy who's taking up all the space going <laughs> It makes your job so much more fun. <laughs> yeah. You could just relax and, you know, and lay down the beat and you're happy, you know, because you don't have to do, you don't have to, you know, take on the whole load. But I thought that was a great band, of course, uh, Bernie and Jerry on that side and then me and Tina on the other side and Dolette singing all these parts and stuff. Uh, man, it was, it was a great band and, and a lot of fun. For me personally, I would just say this. It was the easiest thing I ever did, the easiest band I ever played with, because the music was, uh, for me, I could just play anything over top of it, and it worked so well, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it was. Now, the problem I'm going to have now that we're doing these shows is I don't have anything like that sound or that gear or anything like that anymore. I still have the guitar, that's it. No. still have the amp, but... No. But I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I've got a lot of stuff I do now that's way better, in my opinion. So I'm just going to do what I do now. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head by, by saying it was easy, because I met Talking Heads and joined up in 1977 when they were a four-piece opening for the Ramones in Europe. And then, the so when I got the job, when I, I got taken on board, because I was working for the sound company, and by default, I mixed Talking Heads on that tour. And after the tour, they said, we got talking, and I ended up in New York. But I said to David, and which is a courtesy I, I, I give to anybody I work with, and I said, well, what are you looking for from me out there? And David said, don't get bored. That's the smartest <laughs> thing. That's the smartest thing any musician has ever said to me. Because I'm yeah, going to do. You definitely don't do, want your sound man sleeping, you know. Yeah, but, but I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. You know, depending on the conditions, and then the texture of the band, you know, slowly, slowly evolved. But at that point, it was great to get hold of Talking Heads as the four piece because I was the first professional sound guy they ever had, so somewhat professional, and uh, I kind of trained them. You know how to use monitors, how how to do a real sound check, how to, you know, how it works. Because up to that point, they'd been a club band or poodling around on the east coast of America. You know, playing clubs up and down Washington. Driving Boston. around in a station wagon. In a station wagon. So yeah. So we. I saw them when they came to Nashville and played Exit Inn, and that was seventy-seven, 
Yeah. And, and that was kind of right around the time that I joined Frank Zappa's band and my career started. And I, I couldn't get in the club. It was so, um, it was so packed. But I stood outside of the back door and listened to it and really enjoyed it, you know, and that's how I got to know the band. But I don't know if you were on that tour or not. No, that was just before my time. I th there was a little gap before they came to uh, before they came to to England or after they came back to America. I had stuff to do in in, in London to just tidy up my affairs and commitments, and then I, I moved to New York. Uh, I, I, I came and went a couple of times, did a couple of shows. But but uh, the but you were doing the ones in Illinois, yeah. Oh yeah, I was there. I met you. Yeah, I met you. Yeah, that's when I think you you first started with them on that tour. The uh, I don't know for sure, but that's when they had just put out Fear of Music, and I yeah. loved that well, record. I, did, I, I really thought I, that I, record was great. Yeah, I I I, was, I didn't think they were going to top it, but Remain in Light topped it. <laughs> I was there for buildings and food too. I did. I did. Uh, oh, cool. I did all those tours from '77 on. Uh, the buildings and food. I, I missed a few dates because I was uh, going back and forth from from London and Scotland. But uh, the, the the show we did in Rome uh, that hit YouTube, you know, and I keep forgetting about it. And then I, I I revisited it the other day, and it's like the audience the audience at first weren't that mobile, but I think they were just stunned. I think they were just stunned and watching. And eventually got, you know, because I'm out amongst them at the back of the room. And then I can tell as the set went on, there was more and more movement in people towards where I was in the middle of the arena, you know. And it, yeah. was, it was a horrible sounding room. But yeah, because it was a sports arena. <laughs> it was a dome. It was like it was like a swimming pool on steroids. Listening. <laughs> architecturally you know the architect a blind architect with a blunt pencil i think designed the place but uh we pulled it off and that's the power that's to me that's the power of music it's the power of live sound and i'm really missing it during these covid yeah i've been you know oh yeah i haven't done a show you know in about year. two years ago maybe three i started talking with jerry about doing this because i said you know what I feel like in the times that we live in, and this only got worse with COVID, of course, I feel like what Talking Heads was doing back then is needed now. That kind of really uplifting, joyful thing that you get from being there when that's going on. I, I just felt it. I felt like there just aren't many bands that are pulling that off anymore. Maybe we could do something. I was, of course, hoping that the whole Talking Heads would get back together. Of course, I knew that probably wouldn't happen with what David had said in the press so many times, but you never know. You never know. Uh, but I mean, three years ago, I was thinking this is what the world needs. And I still think, it, I think the world needs it now more than ever. Now that we've gone through this COVID curse, which is so awful. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. Well, I, I you know what I remember about the Rome thing? And when I watched the, when I watched the, uh, the show, because I'm learning a lot from watching it right now. I just can't believe that I was up on that stage in front of that many people. And I, I can, I, I just, you know, I just, just was there. Like, you know, like it was falling off a log. Yeah. <laughs> now, when I look at it, I think, wow, that's a lot of people. And they were really going crazy over us. Well, I, <laughs> I, I can't remember how uh, we, we put that together so quickly 
and I can't even remember the layout of my console. Probably the same way I lay it out today, but it was it was a lot going on on that stage. There's a lot of people. Sure was. A yeah. lot, you know, between scales. That's a hard thing to mix, that's for sure. But somehow I, I, I think I just pushed faders. I put everything uh, uh, at zero. I pushed faders and, and let the band do the rest. But I took full credit for making it fabulous, you know. Oh, and well, you should. <laughs> but but, but I think, you know, also everything was simpler in its own way back then. You know, co the complexities of music and technology and things weren't really there yet. Uh, I mean, that was a pretty simple show, pretty simple songs, simple, you know, no one had crazy stuff going on. We didn't have some crazy light thing going on or whatever. We just got up and played. And it was just about the happiness and joy of playing together. And it was such a good big band that it just felt really nice to be on stage there doing that. I never felt like I had to do anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I can join in or I can just lay back. And uh, there are a couple of songs I'm standing there and shaking some shaker and just singing some background things because I figure, well, you know, I'm not needed in this song, so I'm just going to hang back. Because, you know, now in my life and ever since then in my life, I have the full full-on responsibility. <laughs> there is not a second in my show where I can take a breath because I play two solid hours a for years now in a trio power trio when you're in a trio and i'm making loops to fill in the gaps and you know when you're in a trio you can't uh you can't stop for a second uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the trio being king crimson no no i have my i have my own power trio adrian blue power trio oh, it's now okay. it's now it's now uh for the last tour become a, a quartet who uh -huh. added a fourth member uh, who plays keyboards and guitar and sings. So it, it's really enabled me to do more of my solo material. Uh, we do play King Crimson songs, which were never meant to be played by a, a trio, and we do great with it. Uh, There's hundreds of videos of Adrian Blue Power Trio online, if anyone wants to go and check it out. I shall. Uh, I've, I've always had uh, my bass player, Julie Slick, who is phenomenal. I found her when she was 20 years old. Uh, and she's a phenomenal bass player. Been with me now for 13 years. And the drummers have come and gone, but they've always been really great drummers, too. When you have a power trio, everybody has to sort of play more than, than you normally would. And that's what I liked about it, the idea that, okay, I'm going to put my music now back through a different you know, a different grinder. And here we're going to take these songs that I've known and played throughout my career and do them a new way. And it worked. Fantastic. How did, uh, yeah, we, let's not forget King Crimson, which we nearly did. Of course. But, but how did that come about? How did you get involved with them? Um, I sort of befriended Robert a little bit. Um, he was doing similar things coming over. He lived in New York at the time and, he, he was doing some things like going and doing his Rippertronics things. And so I first met him with David Bowie. I was at the, um, the, the club, The Bottom Line, in New York City, and David and I were there to see a Steve Reich show. And the lights came up at the end of the show, and a couple tables over, there was Robert Tripp sitting there, and David Bowie said, hey, there's Robert Tripp. And I said, oh, I, 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 I'm a huge fan of King Crimson's work, but I didn't even know what he looked like, really. 
um, didn't look the same anyway. So I said, well, I'm going to go say hi to him. And I walked over and uh, talked to him for a second. He, oh, yes, I've heard all about you. Yes, yes. Here, let me write my number on. He took it out Sharpie and wrote his number on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> and said, we must get together. We must get together. Have some coffee or tea. So, of course, you know, I had that number on my arm. What else was I going to do? I called him. We went out. And then, you know, we got to go got to know each other a little bit. I think he was very surprised at my knowledge. I had a very deep knowledge of the, all the early Crimson stuff because when I was a starving musician playing in a lounge bands, <laughs> when I'd finish my gig at night, I would go and put the headphones on and listen to King Crimson. That was the band that I thought was so great at the time. There was no Talking Heads yet, even. This is 69, 71, 2, and 3. So I think from that, he something changed in his head. I don't know. What happened next is my band that I told you about, the one that uh, I was with at Irving Plaza, Gaga, got invited to do uh, the opening, be the opener for five shows with Robert's band. At the time, he had a band called League of Crafty Gentlemen. And uh, we played five shows as their opener. By the end of those five shows, I mean, I know he, he watched our shows. He was delighted. And I think that's when he got the idea that, well, this is the guy I want to work with, you know. And then when Talking Heads arrived in London, <laughs> the very first night, I'm sure you were there. I was. We went to a Russian restaurant. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Such a, such a, a scene. It, it was a Russian restaurant. They kept us waiting because we were such a large party of people. They kept us waiting in this upper room before they took us downstairs to the dining room. And they kept bringing trays and trays through the... It was very crowded. Trays of hot vodkas, lit vodkas with flames on them. And you'd give them to everybody. I was not a drinker at all, nor a drug taker even. And I remember one thing that happened, though. Trey came by, a tray full of lit vodkas came by, and there was a woman standing next to me, probably English, and her back of her hair caught on fire, and I started <laughs> pounding on the back of her head, <laughs> which was kind of strange, but, you know, it, it's what you had to do, you know. They took us downstairs, and by that time, we had been drinking hot vodkas, and I remember it broke out eventually into a giant food fight. <laughs> and we're throwing latkes and stuff all across the room. Next morning, I woke up to a phone call in my hotel room. Blaring phone call because I had, I had just such a blazing headache, you know. And it woke me up. And hello, it's Robert Tripp. Oh, I, I thought I'd call you because I knew you wouldn't be out raving. I thought I'd call you early. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. Could you please call back <laughs> in a couple hours? <laughs> so when he called me back, he said, uh, "I want to, me and Bill Bruford want to start a band with you." And I said, "Well, all right then. Let's let's talk about that." And as it went, you know, we finished out the Talking Heads tour. I did the um, I did the the Tom Tom Club record down in the Bahamas. And there came a point with Chris and Tina, which I was living with them in the Bahamas for those two weeks, where I think they were talking to Jerry, and they were saying, you know, we should get you in the Talking Heads. I mean, this 
really seriously happen as the fifth member. And But David was in Bali, and he was there for a month. And there was no way to reach David. So they said... We, you know, we just, you know, Jerry, Jerry's into it, we're into it, but we just, you know, we got to wait till we can talk to David when he gets back. So there was kind of that offer sitting there, and then Robert was calling me all the time saying, what do you think, what do you think, we, you know, we, we're going to rehearse in, in New York, we're going to uh, audition bass players, are you ready? And so I talked to my manager, and I'll never forget what he said, he said, well, what you have here is... An offer and not an offer. <laughs> so he said, there, there really isn't a choice. <laughs> you know, the Darking Heads have not offered you anything, and King and Robert Fripp and Bill Bruford have. So, so I, I said, well, okay, then I've got to, got to go. So I made my choice and joined King Crimson. Wow, which pissed Tina off big time. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm sorry, Tina. I love you still, but. I had to, I had to move on, you know. You got a yeah, a bird in the hand, as they say. And uh, and as I say, I was I mean huge fan. Bill Bruford was my favorite drummer at the time too. Still is one of my very favorites. Uh, Robert, of course, I, I liked his things, but um, I was very nervous <laughs> about suddenly being put in the position that I had wanted to be put in all my life. I'd always wanted to be the, you know, in a band, out front, playing guitar, writing the songs, being the lyricist, being the front man. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, wow, okay, I'm in this band. And after six weeks of rehearsing and writing together, uh, Robert Tripp called, decided that it should be called King Crimson. When that happened, well, in my mind, everything exploded because I thought, oh, my God, now I'm in King Crimson. I'm not just in a new band. <laughs> King Crimson comes with a lot of responsibility, a lot of expectation because it was such a great band. And uh, so that put a lot of pressure on me. It took a while to grab hold of all that and, and finally start writing songs and and words that I thought were appropriate. And also, at the same time, I had to learn the style of guitar playing that Robert did, which wasn't at all what I kind of played like. I'm, I'm much more loose and crazy with my playing. I had to learn that, and that took weeks. I mean, we would sit down every day for four or five hours and just sit there playing over and over and over. And then at one point, Robert said, okay, you're up to speed on that now, so I want you to take this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da stuff and write songs with it. And I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding me. You can't write a song with that. that it's, there's nothing there. You know, it's just a, sort of like a, I don't know, well, how would you describe that playing? There's nothing there. There's no chord changes. There's nothing, you know? So how do you write a song to that? Noodling. So uh, it's called that noodling. took me a while to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So you so, know because I mean you know because the same thing he played in Ezimbra is what I'm talking about. So he had already played that. He had been playing that kind of playing for a couple of years then, uh, and I, I, you know, I was like, well, I don't really know what I can do with that, but I did eventually. 
It's fan- fantastic. So, so getting up to date, we're, we're uh, pre-COVID, uh, pre-post-COVID. Um, you plan to go out with with the remaining light thing? I'm keen to see that. I'm going to be there wherever I'll find you somewhere uh, and see that. I'd love to get my hands on that band again to mix them live again, knowing what I know now and having the experience and having, I went to see David's show uh, on Broadway and as a sound man, it's very difficult to be an audience member because I'm always thinking, well, I had had a history with those songs, you know. Yeah. I'd like, I told David that too. I told him. He, he, I'm, he, I'm all he for laughed. you doing that, by the way. I don't have anything to do with it. You, as I said, this is all uh, under the umbrella of basically uh, Jerry's manager, yeah, Sean Daly, and uh, Turquoise's manager. So you should get a hold of him. Do you have Jerry's info? Oh yeah, of course. I talked to Jerry. I, he was on the podcast. Yeah, you, he was you on should. The of course you do. Yeah, that's how you got my number. Exactly. So you should. Uh, you should definitely talk to him. That would. That would kind of bring it full circle. I think it would, it's a great be idea. Be a wonderful thing. Be a wonderful yeah, thing. Yeah, I think it would be too. I'm, I'm you also, know how to do it because you're the one who did it. Who did it the first time. I, um, yeah. The other thing is too, I've been abstinent from drugs and alcohol for 30 years. So I've definitely got a, a, a perspective on it. And I, like I say, two bass players or whatever it is or just those songs I know those songs so intimately when I hear them on the radio it's like well Turquoise has two girl singers great and they also have a three piece uh, horn section so that adds a lot too so you really be I mean it's it's really they're really meant to play this music when Jerry took me to hear them he flew into Nashville here and we went to see one of their shows in fact at the exit end again and uh, they played three songs. And I see. Oh, this this is this is the right band. They, they got it. They know exactly what they're doing, and they played uh, some Talking Heads material from that time. So, yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, I'd love to have you at the helm there, but I don't. Like I say, it's not it's not my baby. Um, I think there's too many chefs, so I, I'm staying yeah, back yeah, out of yeah, it. Yeah, I just yeah. want to play the show. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll call somebody, and, and I'm not I'm not yeah, definitely. I'm you not desperate. That, I'm not desperate to work, but that that would be a wonderful thing for me to do. Yeah, I think so too. Fantastic. So on that note, I guess we should uh, we should wrap this up, Adrian. And I cannot thank you enough for uh, your time and your and your stories and just a little embellishing and i'm sure the people listening to this will thank you too and well i love the people who like what i do yeah and i appreciate them more than ever so i i do as much as i can you know i i'm always there to sign something or or talk about something with anyone and i'd love to see you you know holding the reins yeah <laughs> on on the christmas sleigh as we, I, <laughs> as we I, I might even sing around I, I might even put you in the mix you never know. I'll, I'll tell you just like I did last time. No, I remember Nothing. when you. I, re, I remember. Wait, hear this, and I never forgot this, and I actually did it. And and at that point in my belligerent uh, uh, drug and alcohol fueled years, uh, I didn't take advice very from anybody. But you said to me just before the Central Park show, you said in the wings, you uh, backstage, you said, Frank, just make sure that everything I play soars out over this park today. And I never forgot that. And I still use that for a guitar. It's soaring out over the audience. I still yeah. do it. I well, still you know, do it. I, 
I was a bit of a smart ass too back then, you know. Well, I mean, you know, you didn't get really. I think I, I, I think I was never that, but I, I uh, probably was just joking with you, of course. But, I took um, it, se- you- I took it seriously, but but then again, you never get on stage to not be noticed, dear boy. That's the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. Uh, What's that guy over there doing? That funny-looking guy making all those weird sounds. uh, Well, okay. Well, lovely talking to you again. Thank you so much, um, Adrian. I'd love to see you again in person. You will. All the fans, all the fans out there listening to this, please come and see the Remain in Light 40th anniversary show. I think it's going to be a joy. Fantastic. Good luck, my friend. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for plugging in. We can't do without you. And if you can, please consider supporting the show so that we can keep it running through 2021. Go to our website at soundmanconfidential.com to find the link and to check out our amazing upcoming guest list. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black and Chet Bentley, web designed by Adelaide Bell. Original music by Paul Westwater. And publicity by Paddy DeVries at Devious Planet Media.